This episode is brought to you by Mellow Kai by Rosalind Kelly. In a ruthless land ruled by women, legendary warrior Ramya has served as Mellow Kai longer than most, bringing her people peace and prosperity. As her time comes to an end, she braces for the gruesome sentence imposed on all Malokais who've served their purpose. But instead, she's given a shocking prophecy, and the arrival of a mysterious cave creature could foretell of a greater evil. With threats from all sides, Ramya and her female warriors must crush an epic rebellion before it devastates her beloved nation. She thinks it's the end, but it's just the beginning. Melokai by Rosalind Kelly. Available now on Kindle ebook or paperback. Dark and gritty adult fantasy perfect for fans of George R.R. R. Martin, Anna Stevens, and Joe Abercrombie. Sprawling magical worlds, brutal battles, diverse characters, and high-stakes intrigue make Melokai a must-have addition to your grimdark reading library. Melokai by Rosalind Kelly. Available now on Amazon. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings podcast, then you'll love Grimdark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for grimdark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee-deep in grit. Log on to grimdarkmagazine.com. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyard. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward It's the Grim Tidings Podcast, Grim Panel, Ladies of Grimdark. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. Today we have a great group of writerly professionals joining us on the podcast, which just so happen to be women who write Grimdark. Most of the names of my guests today should be familiar to regular listeners of the show, but if you're new to the podcast, today's episode will not only be a great opportunity to get to know some of the most badass fantasy authors around, but a chance to familiarize yourself with the Grimdark subgenre as well. On today's episode, we'll definitely talk about Grimdark, we'll talk writing, publishing, we've got a few questions from our patrons as well, and I have no doubt that today's panel will be informative entertaining, expletive-laden, and will no doubt leave you with a laundry list of books to add to your TBR pile. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to all the guests we have on the show today, including previous appearances here on the podcast. And as always, be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction, readers and writers for daily updates on all things Grimdark. And who knows, you may just find yourself getting into a conversation with one of my four awesome guests I have on the show today. So let's start with some introductions. My first guest is the author of The Court of Broken Knives. She has an MA in History and a PhD in English Literature. Former obsessive D&D player, fetish model, and wearer of unusual shoes... 
Book two of her Empires of Dust series, The Tower of Living and Dying, is set to drop August of 2018. Based out of London, England, Anna Smith-Spark. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. My next guest is author of The Dragon's Legacy. She has a handful of degrees and previous employment as an underwater photographer, Arabic linguist, and grumbling wage slave. Through it all, maintaining her true love for storytelling to the benefit of us all. Book two of the Dragon's Legacy series, The Forbidden City, is slated for release this May. Skyping in from the frosty tundra of northern Michigan, we welcome Deborah A. Wolf back to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Next on the podcast is the author of Godblind. She has a BA in literature and wanted to be a writer for as long as she can remember. Based in the UK, where she lives with her husband, a huge collection of books, movies, and music. And last we checked, no pets. Book two of the Godblind trilogy, Dark Soul, is also set to release August of 2018. Anna Stevens, welcome back to the show. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back. And rounding out our awesome panel today is a name very familiar within the SFF realm. She's been reviewing books for eight years and works to promote disability representation in genre fiction. She's a spiffbo judge, freelance editor, and lover of carnage. She currently has a novel on submission with two in the works, and no doubt will soon be a household name to Grimdark fans the world over. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Sarah Chorn to the show. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you, ladies, so much for joining us on the podcast today. Deborah Wolf, you were a part inspiration of putting this thing together. I always wanted to have a Ladies of Grimdark panel. I thought it was a great idea. And Deborah, just a few months ago, you're like, when are we going to do this damn thing? And I'm like, okay, Deborah, let's do it. And we uh, we got it scheduled. Uh, we were going to do it a couple of weeks ago, and then I got deathly ill. Good news, I'm alive as we're recording today. Um, so we're going <laughs> to. Re- be way more Grimdark if we were talking to your corpse, rather. <laughs> That's really true. That, that would be GDAP <laughs> if I were dead. For this podcast, but fortunately, I'm alive, uh, I guess. But we're doing this podcast panel today, and I'm really, really excited. Um, I've had um, three of my four guests uh, on the podcast previously. Like I mentioned before, check the show notes for their previous appearances on the podcast. Uh, we've dived into more topics with them, but uh, today we've got them on the show to talk about. Well, we'll talk about Grimdark, I guess. They each have uh, books that I, I, we would say are published or going to be published within the Grimdark subgenre. So we're going to bring them on today to pick their brains, talk writing, talk publishing, talk Grimdark. And I think, first of all, what I'd like to do is establish a definition of Grimdark, which should be really, really easy, <laughs> I think. Okay. Uh, Grimdark is whatever the heck we say it is. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yes, yes. Grimdark is just, yeah, we decide. Yeah, we, we're going to establish right it today. Now. We've got, we're going to establish it right here and now. We've got the ladies of Grimdark on the Grim Tidings podcast, uh, experts within the realm of Grimdark. So let's talk about the definition. Deborah A. Wolf, we'll, we'll start with you. You're the GTP alum. You were back on episode, I think, five, six, seven, or eight, uh, you're way back in the day, right when we were starting. Um, so we'll bring you first on the show. If you could maybe give us, what's maybe a definition of grimdark, Deborah Wolf? I would say grimdark is fantasy with the, uh, with the fighting gloves off. Um, you know, the hero's not always going to save the day. The good guys aren't always going to be good guys. And, you know, shit's just going to go south and keep going south until it falls off the end of the world. And it's a lot of fun. Anna Smith-Spark, what would you add to that? Um, what, what are your thoughts on the definition of Grimdark? Okay, my two definitions are either the kind of complicated intellectual literary critic definition, which is basically what Deborah said, um, cynicism, a lack of, and in fact, an interrogation of traditional concepts of morality and the hero, and the whole kind of notion of good and evil 
I mean, the kind of I've got in terrible trouble for saying some very, very rude things about particularly Ned Stark, about the Starks and how I kind of see them as absolutely the villains. And that kind of that kind of complete undermining and interrogation of the nature of things like concepts like the hero of concepts like honor and kind of good and the, the kind of victory of good over evil and what all of that might mean and also the kind of cynicism that kind of the grittiness the muddiness the unpleasantness of life and translating that into fantasy kind of taking the kind of wonderful wonderful epic fantasy that we all love the kind of dragons and magic impossibility and kind of sort of you know absurdly high fantasy but also grounding it in the kind of filth and crap and body disgust of actual real human life and lived experience the, the alternative definition is it's a fantasy novel where i fancy the hero because if i fancy the hero then kind of he's clearly so fucking horrible that he must be grimmed up <laughs> uh let's bring in uh sarah chorn you've got a, a novel out on submission and uh the current novel that you have on submission actually was rejected for you said uh casual savagery yeah i had too much casual savagery in it which is pretty awesome <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good uh rejection letter i i think to have especially when you're i guess uh, writing uh, some grimdark. So what are your thoughts, Sarah? What, how would you define grimdark? So I, the funny thing is I was actually asked to be on a panel once at a convention where we discussed this. And before the panel even started, everyone on it started fighting about the <laughs> definition. And I finally just said, okay, I'm done. I'm not doing this. So I've, I've been in this situation before and so far no one's throwing punches and I really appreciate that. But <laughs> I was on a panel that was actually supposed to be an attack on Grimdark. It was supposed to be basically women critiquing Grimdark for misogyny and all the kind of, you know, all the kind of crap that gets really unfairly thrown at us. And there were like all these other panelists who were there with their kind of anti-Grimdark. And then there was me. And then there was Luke Skull and Andy Remick sitting in the front and Ben Galley sitting in the front row. And I was like, hi, guys. Yeah, kind of, hi, Grimdark, the Grimdark crowd. Yeah, that would be like me and half the front row. And so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it gets pretty heated. I don't I don't yes. understand, but it whoa. Um I, I don't really know how I define it. And I think that's part of the problem. I think generally speaking, life is pretty dark. At least my personal experience has been. I mean, I've been dealing with really horrific health things for a few years now and that just sucks. And so in in my experience grimdark is more the side of life that people are afraid to talk about so it's like my my characters i write are grimdark but i think it's in a more personal way like a transformative way because that's what i experience so for me grimdark is just people who are writing about aspects of life of the personal experience of stuff like that that changes them in ways that maybe we're uncomfortable talking about in daily life and then Anna Stevens, uh, author of God Blind. Um, how would you define Grimdark? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Sarah's definitely hit the nail on the head there. Pun not intended. If anyone's read God Blind, they're <laughs> going to understand that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it was clearly it grew out of a reaction to high fantasy, and you know everything was perfect and beautiful, and everyone was so pretty, and you know blah blah blah. The, the villains were very very bad, and the heroes were very very good, and. And I think people, you know, as, as time went on and, and literature matured, people started thinking, this isn't representative of me. You know, this isn't the way I see the world. I've never met anyone who is that amazingly good. 
um, and unless I don't know, unless you've met the Dalai Lama, I can't imagine that you're ever going to meet a hero from a high fantasy novel. So I think it, it was a reaction to that. People wanted to start talking about the grey in between the black and white. You know, the, there's no clear cut hero. There's no clear cut villain. I think Grimdark starts in the underbelly and tries to, you know, chew its way out, basically. And we just had uh, Mark Lawrence back on the podcast here, uh, and we talked about the definition of grimdark with him um, as well. And in our conversation, we uh, often bring up that most authors who set out to write grimdark don't set out thinking, I'm writing grimdark. They just write a novel, and in the end, it happens to be grimdark. Is that the same thing with each one of you as an author? You you don't intentionally write grimdark, but this is just the natural tone of your literature. Oh, no, I'm I'm intentionally writing grimdark because I don't don't – want to blow sunshine up anybody's ass with my writing i'm just i'm tired of that i'm tired of i'm tired of not everybody getting to be a hero because none of us are perfect so traditional fantasy teaches us that if we're not you know the chosen one the hero the perfect person that we're not the hero of our own story and it also it teaches us that heroes never do bad things they never fuck up um or that if they do fuck up you know some god is going to swoop in and save the world and and that's just not how life works um i prefer to have my fantasy without you know an extra load of sunshine being blown up my ass so you know i didn't start off it's anna smith spark i didn't start off right i didn't even start off thinking i was writing a novel let alone a fantasy novel let alone a grimdark epic fantasy novel i mean i've always loved history historical writing and fantasy and when i read them i was i've read a lot of kind of very straight kind of mask you know it's a very very hyper masculine very unquestioningly this is the hero this is the story of the conquering hero i mean a lot of kind of military historical fiction is very much you know the, the conquering hero and his great journey to become emperor or king or whatever but i always read that with a kind of in- interrogation of what's going on now i really hadn't realized actually a lot of people kind of read it much more kind of like yeah, yeah i want to be bloke with sword um and i kind of i'd always read it critiquing it for into for the for violence for a kind of fascist cult of violence and leadership and the kind of fascistic death drive around the kind of the idea of you know the sort of death or glory hero and the kind of idea of what what following someone for following a leader to death would actually mean and so when I was writing that just came out very naturally in what I was writing I was just kind of what that was what I was interested in writing was exploring kind of power and violence and also, I was quite scared of writing fight scenes for ages. I was really tiptoeing my way around writing a fight scene because I'm not particularly physically, I'm not a particularly physical person. I've never been in a fight. And then it turned out <laughs> it's just something that I can write very naturally and hugely enjoy writing. So I, I have my cake and eat it, I guess. I kind of claim constantly I'm kind of writing it. I did not set out to write this. I set out to write an incredibly, I did not. And I'm just naturally writing a critique and also I just love writing the violence, and it just came out like that. It just happened like that. Sarah Chorn, you're a reviewer. No doubt you've read a ton of Grimdark. Um, since you're the, the new author um, here on the podcast, do you set out to write Grimdark, or did you set out to write Grimdark with that, uh, that manuscript, or is that your goal when you're, when you're writing uh, your, your casual savagery? <laughs> no, actually, I didn't even really think I was writing a novel. I, uh, the whole thing kind of grew out of my cancer issues. Like, I was... The idea for that novel and for the other two that I'm writing now actually kind of came to me when I was in a waiting room in a hospital. And the whole, the whole thing with 
I, I don't know. I mean, in real life these days, there's like war, but there's war that happens on a lot of different fronts. And the war that I had to fight was in the hospital. So it's super grim dark. And I remember I was sitting in the waiting room of this hospital with all these people. And I was just thinking, this is incredible because we're all just, you know, on the underbelly of life. This is the stuff nobody wants to talk about. And I was pissed off. And then I just sat down at my computer and I started writing. And so everything that I'm currently working on is born out of this moment in the hospital where I was looking around myself and thinking everyone in this room is hating the fact that they're here. And so, and that was just it. And so, I mean, I have a lot of pent up issues. And so most of my characters have this personal transformation journey thing going on. I never expected it to be grimdark because I never really thought of it as grimdark until people told me, wow, Sarah, that's pretty dark. But, you know, that's life. And and so I think in a lot of ways, I, I set out to write kind of my experience in a way that people could digest it. And I, I didn't really think of it as grimdark. It's just that's sometimes life really sucks. But that's just what it is. I don't know. It's like um, my own personal therapist is uh, my scrivener. Anna Stevens, uh, do you have that uh, intentionality when you're writing to write grimdark? No, not at all. I didn't realize I had written a grimdark novel until Harper Voyager decided to badge it as a grimdark novel. I pretty much set out to write people like me, um, which does not, I am not saying that I am, you know, GDAF because, because I'm absolutely not, you know, I mean, I, I, I melt when I see a puppy, you know, that's not particularly fucking grimdark. Um, but, but what I wanted to do was I, I just wanted to write normal people, you know, I mean that, yeah, there are some really dark characters in there. Um, but, but I think, you know, for the benefit of the narrative, there has to be some really nasty people in there, but everyone else, I just wanted to write different aspects of, normal humans and then put them into really terrible situations and just see how normal people deal with it because you know I mean Aragorn is you know amazing and wonderful and beautiful and noble and stuff like that and 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 that's absolutely great but I'm not Aragorn you know I'm just a completely normal person so what would happen if I was put into these situations so that was what I was setting out to do and then I just had a real relish for writing the darker stuff but it was still about the people who were in that dark shit it wasn't it wasn't writing the dark shit for the sake of it it was writing it to see how the characters would react in it so that that's basically my approach and sometimes I will write a scene and then be completely taken by surprise at at just how disgusting and twisted it is and then you know and then I'll just think oh cool and carry on to the next bit but you know, the scenes are the scenes, but it's about the characters for me. Okay. I will say as a reader, the books that stick with me the longest are the ones with characters that have darker sides. Sometimes I want to read the fluffy stuff. Sometimes I need to. But if you're asking me as a reviewer which books I like, the ones that I'm going to list you are going to be ones with characters that live in that gray area because those are the characters that I relate to. Those are the characters that speak to me as a human being experiencing the world the most. So I think in in my reviewing life, the books that always get the highest ratings are always going to be the ones 
that aren't afraid to get a little dark because sometimes life is dark and, and the books that speak to that part of me are the ones that matter more. So there you go. Anna Smith-Spark, you mentioned something earlier I think we, we should touch on as well. There seems to be some of that contention with Grimdark as a whole, where people kind of hear that word sometimes and have this knee-jerk reaction and say, well, that's stuff that I'm automatically not going to be interested in because it's dark and miserable and vile, and it's probably not going to be stuff that I'd like. So I think there's probably some maybe some misconceptions of Grimdark that people might have, um, and maybe we should touch on that for a second. Um, maybe Anna Smith-Spark will start with you since you were at that panel. Do you think there were maybe some misconceptions that uh, those panelists had about Grimdark? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, the really big one, which as all four of us guests here are women, is the kind of the big, the big issue about the kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that people make that very com- casual kind of sentence that Grimdark is innately misogynistic. And I'm kind of pointing out, well, and the, you know, the classic thing is, well, Mark Lawrence makes a joke about rape. So clearly Grimdark is totally misogynistic. Or the kind of, you know, um, R. Scott Baker. As soon as you mentioned R. Scott Baker, people are like, but he's only got two female characters and one's a sex worker and the other's a sex worker. And um, <laughs> kind of, and you're kind of like, well, yeah, OK, but that's way more complicated. It's way more complicated. Yes, this is a very a lot of the Grimdark worlds, are, you know, they are bleak, dark places they are taking you into the dark kind of underbelly of human nature which very clearly includes misogyny sexual abuse the degradation of women because hey take a look outside folks that's generally pretty well much how culture has operated since kind of humanity seems to first evolved i'd love to believe we lived in a matriarchy once but i really don't think we ever did and the the fact that that is made real and made clear and commented on is confused with the idea that it's somehow supported. Baker isn't saying, whoa, it's great that this society has absolutely no sense of women as anything other than sex workers. He's saying, isn't this absolutely appalling? And in fact, he's pointing out his scenes about men are such a, you know, a really, really profound critique of masculinity and toxic, of toxic masculinity. But people don't seem to see that. They just kind of see, well, it's only got two female characters and they're both sex workers, so clearly it must be misogynistic rather than, well, maybe that is the worst, some kind of comment in the world about the world and about the men in that world being very trapped in their own kind of narrow circles of masculinity. And that, I think, is something... I mean, I've always found the Grimdark community far more welcoming and far more, actually, far more kind of politically astute and politically aware than some other fantasy groups because we are critiquing that. We're kind of, you know, what, what's actually going on in a book? Like, if you take something like The Lord of the Rings, you kind of, you know, what actually would the reality of that amazing heroic situation be? There'd be a lot of horror there, the kind of misogyny implicit within the very masculine world of The Lord of the Rings is really brought out in things like in Grimdark. And that, I think, is something that's completely overlooked just for kind of, Mark Lawrence isn't making a rape joke because he thinks it's hilariously funny to make a rape joke. He's making a rape joke to point out these nasty unpleasant people have this deeply unpleasant view of rape and of women and actually maybe part of the part of George's journey is to learn that there's that bit when you realize there's actually kind of sex is nicer when the other person actually wants to do it as well and that kind of that is those kind of moments I mean who knew (laughs) but those kind of moments and that that's the point that Grimdark's making where the kind of very traditional kind of the hero strides into the room and all the women just collapse and immediately will just immediately want to have sex with him. Just is completely unrealistic about. Deb Wolf, did you want to chime in? Or do you have any uh, thoughts on maybe what maybe some misconceptions maybe you've come across as a published author uh, since um, uh, The Dragon's Legacy came out? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I and I agree with my my fellow panelists here. I think a big mix, misconception is that there are unpleasant things in the story: um, rape and torture and misogyny and shit going south. Just like it's all piled in there into a sandwich just for the sake of being there. When from what I've read, um, Grimdark tends to be very, very smart literature, um, as opposed to a hero's journey where the hero is a hero because he's the hero, the bad guy's a bad guy just because he's bad, without a whole bunch of exploration. You know, what made him bad? What what makes him bad? Oh, he, he was born bad, or um, you know, or he was born to be the chosen one. There's not a whole bunch of exploration, and that to me seems a very thin soup. A lot of times in 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 well-written Grimdark, the grim shit happens for a reason. It, it's an exploration and not just um, not just it's not a celebration of of the nastier side of human nature. It's an exploration of it. And I, I think a lot of people just aren't quite ready for the depth of this type of literature. Anna Stevens, did you want to chime in on misconceptions? Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the biggest ones that I have sort of become aware of through online fantasy groups and Twitter and stuff like that is that Grimdark doesn't have any hope in it which I think is a massive misconception. Um, it may not be hope and lightness in the way that you are used to reading it in some of the lighter fantasy novels out there, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I mean, Godblind in particular, I I will all, you know, I will die on the hill that Godblind is a really hopeful book. People don't want to be doing what they're having to do, but they are hopeful that they get to do something better after all of this, after the war is over, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, it's like Deb was saying about um, the chosen one is the chosen one. You know, Grimdark will talk about the chosen one who doesn't want to be fucking chosen. You know, he doesn't want to do any of this shit, but he's having to. And he is making the decision to do that because ultimately it could have beneficial effects for the people that he loves or, you know, anything like that. So it's, it's a question of it's doing it's. It's characters doing what they don't want to do because um, but that's just life. You know, it's not the chosen one riding off into the sunset because he found a magic sword. And I suppose the only other one for me that I've come across as a misconception of Grimdark is that women can't write it. And which is another reason why I'm super pleased to be on a panel of women writing Grimdark, because there's clearly at least four of us. Um, so, you know, maybe pull your head out of your ass and just have a look around. And then uh, Sarah Chorn, uh, since you've got that uh, novel on submission, are you um, coming across any misconceptions um, when you're maybe submitting uh, this novel about uh, Grimdark? Um, is that a problem for you at all? A little while ago, I was on Twitter and I saw a graph and I posted it on Twitter and said something like, imagine that this shows that only one woman ever wrote fantasy and it blew up. People were super pissed about the fact that women were upset about the fact that there was only one woman fantasy author mentioned on this graph. I don't know. It's probably still on Twitter. But um, it was it was quite a time, and I debated on whether or not I should just stop writing. This is a very real-life example about how all of these grimdark things that we've been talking about um, are, are realistic in our everyday life. I mean, grimdark isn't unrealistic. It really isn't an unrealistic genre, and I hear that all the time that it's not realistic it's too dark we're making people do things that 
people wouldn't do. So, you know, in, in my estimation, the whole idea that grimdark is unrealistic pisses me off because I see, I see examples of grimdark in life all the time. Because I just find, I mean, the idea that anyone would say grimdark is not realistic, I just, I haven't actually heard that. I just, maybe it shows incredibly narrow circles I move in that just, I don't obviously don't know anyone who's an optimist, but um, the idea that no one is ever going to write anything as dark and unpleasant as the way the world is. I mean, Christ, you know, our two, our, our two countries just um, bombed Syria yesterday morning, you know, and someone posting this, you know, this political people pointing out you know we're kind of the what cycle of what's going on in parts of the world and i mean huge parts of the world the idea that grimdark fantasy is not somehow realistic that people will not do these things is entirely unrealistic to assume that people would not do these things the idea that you know again this where the kind of issue about people sort of write what perceptions of women and things you know the idea that one would not be writing about a world in which people have profoundly unpleasant review views of things and behaving in entirely unpleasant ways seems kind of completely absurd as an intelligent person how can you not be wanting to interrogate the world and work out what's going on what the hell is motivated what the hell means that we're all behaving like this and we're fucking everything up this badly it absolutely astonishes me that anyone would say grim doc is not realistic I'd like to chime in a little bit too. Um, The idea that women can't write grimdark is just so absolutely fucked that I feel the need to speak to that. Historically, women bear the brunt of all kinds of atrocious acts. I mean, as a group, we have acid thrown in our face because we don't want to marry some jackass. Um, You know, we're murdered on a regular basis. There are so many missing, murdered indigenous women that they have an acronym for it because nobody wants to say the entire missing, murdered indigenous woman. Oh, that's just another MMIW. Nobody cares. Um, The women are murdered and raped and sold as chattel. And oh, my God, and we give birth. If you've ever watched that, you'll know that, you know, I mean, this screaming thing comes out of your body and it's just gore and nastiness and it can kill you. And then you love the damn thing. Right. There was this, this wonderful this, thing. Someone posted this comment. I'm sorry, women, but I'm sorry, ladies, but you know, you just don't understand blood and gore. And you're like, I'm just excuse me. Right. I, you know, I have given her four times this, this screaming, squealing thing covered in my own bodily fluids, and I loved it every time. And then I did it again on purpose. And, and you know, there was a fair amount of pain involved in that and mess. And, and the idea that a woman cannot what, speak to the experience of, of, of torture and pain and anguish and fear, that is just so absolutely fucked that you just go away. But, but you well, know, some was- dude that likes, like, lives in his mom's basement eating fucking Cheetos has got more to tell me about pain than I will ever understand. Fuck you. Well, What's there is a famous story that one of the great, great 18th century figures of the French Enlightenment, one of the great founding fathers of, I think it was Diderot, I'm sure it was Diderot, one of the great founders of the kind of French age of reason, apparently believed that women, when women have a shit, we produce little lavender bags tied up with pink ribbons. Because his idea of women's like was so fucking far removed that, you know, kind of like... You need to go in the female latrine after everybody who's been eating MREs for a week. <laughs> uh, that's pretty dark. But, the, but then we can also go to the other extreme of utterly ridiculous. I remember seeing on, oh, I don't know, it might, it might have been Reddit. There was a massive discussion that was going on about a book. I don't, I cannot remember the title of the book and I probably wouldn't mention it anyway, but there's, 
a book out there in which a woman fights and kills a dragon. And all of these dudes were saying, well, that's just impossible because she wouldn't be strong enough to kill a dragon. And there's like, there was this one poor, brave woman who pointed out it's fucking fantasy. And you find <laughs> the fact that it's a woman more inconceivable than the fact it was a dragon, you know? And, <laughs> and all these guys say, yeah, all these guys saying, you know, well, I mean, she just wouldn't have the strength to kill a dragon. And I'm like, uh, uh, so dragons is fine, but women with biceps is not. You know, it was just so utterly ridiculous. And this poor woman, she pointed this out and got absolutely vilified. Hundreds of comments saying that she didn't know what she was talking about. Blah, blah, blah. And some dude turning up and trying to talk about, like, power to mass ratio and shit. I'm like, it's a fucking dragon, mate. So what wait, about the power to mass ratio to get it yes. off the ground? What about the mechanics of it breathing fire? All of those are perfectly legitimate. But the fact that a woman stuck a sword in it is not. So it's obviously it's a fact. It must be a fairly small dragon. I mean, it must be you know, <laughs> the, the power to weight ratio has to be so kind of that you know the power to weight ratio between say me and Rob would be so extreme that the difference between me killing the dragon and Rob killing the dragon would make it like totally implausible that I could kill it, but completely plausible Rob can kill it. I mean, yeah, that suggests exactly. the size of this dragon must be very very carefully balanced. If kind of that that little little difference in power to weight ratio really makes that much of it made that much of a difference there. Yeah, yeah, it just boggles the mind. <laughs> doesn't it? That was a thing. I was on a panel a couple of um, last month and one of the other authors on the panel thought I was the, I worked in the bookshop and was there to sell books and was really, really surprised when he discovered I'd actually written a book. He was Ouch. just, he couldn't cope with the fact that I'd written a book. Well, yeah, then I managed oh, to drop the fact. I then I managed to drop the fact I had a PhD into the conversation two minutes later. I just, just jammed the fact I had a PhD into the conversation and he nearly fainted. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like uh, online communities can definitely be a, a place of hostility uh, these days when it comes to being just talking about uh, women in fiction, in fantasy, in publishing, period, these days. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of incredible. Like I got it so much from certain groups I was in online that I've ditched all of my groups because I just don't want to. I, I had conversations with a few author friends quite recently where I was wondering, you know, is there really a place for women in this thing anymore? Um, there's a lot of times when I feel very much like uh, women are pushed on the outside. And and if you look at the genre events, and I kind of almost hate to mention this because I'm opening up a can of worms and I apologize, but our current president is making our country very polarized. And whichever polar you find yourself on, there's a huge divide here now, and we all hate each other. And I very much feel that transcending into the genre. We have authors uh, in in the community now who are just very far on one side or the other, and there's very few people standing in the middle trying to bridge the gap. And a lot of times, I really do feel as a reviewer that I don't really have a place in the community anymore because there's no middle ground. You're either with you, these people or you're against these people. And, and I just, I very much do feel that. You can see that in issues that, that surface every year when the Hugo Slates dropped. Every single year, there's like two months where I just don't even want to be online because there's so much vitriol being spewed everywhere. 
So, and, and it's about a, a whole bunch of things. I, we don't write fluffy enough books. Science fiction isn't fun anymore. Um, women write things and that's like a sin. It, it's just all, all sorts of issues. I and mean, I see it all the time and it's very hard as a reviewer to feel like I have a place anymore. So I've actually very much pulled out of the reviewing community because I just don't feel like I belong. For the authors on the panel, have you um, experienced any sort of uh, online group hostility as well? I think we're lucky in the UK where that Mm. kind of cultural war has not... We are deeply divided as a country. We are deeply scarred by things like Brexit. We are pretty fucked as a country, but that kind of cultural wars... People are trying to bring some elements of the kind of cultural wars talking Sarah's talking about over to the UK, but it's not actually, and it's certainly not embedding itself in popular consciousness to that degree. I mean, most of the writing community I'm in, I know certainly from going to most of the UK cons, are pretty politically liberal to left, and that is fairly taken as read the kind of. I personally have never, well, I mean, I've experienced sexism from old gits who get astonished that a woman wearing a low-cut dress can possibly also, like, you're attractive, but you're also a writer. Like, don't the the boobs get in the way of typing or something? But, you know, I've never experienced kind of, um, (laughs) I've never experienced kind of that kind of what Sarah's talking about, you know, the kind of much more vitriolic kind of clash of political ideologies. I mean, I guess the UK culture just feels a lot safer from that point of view and a lot more pleasant. And dear God, long may it continue. I think it's a lot more subtle too. It's, it's stuff like when, when there's an online discussion about um, women writing fantasy and, you know, the fact that like Cameron Hurley pointed out, we make a lot less money um, as a group uh, than uh, male writers who write similar books with similar skill and talent. Um, she pointed that out and that, that, you know, pissed me off a little bit, but a lot of it is, is, is more subtle. It's not somebody saying women don't write grimdark. They say, Oh, I don't notice the gender of the person whose books I'm buying, but <laughs> they do, you know, yeah. and it's just like, it just makes you want to grit your teeth and punch somebody, but you don't, what you do is just go out there and write a better book than they did and call it a day. I mean, there's still we still live in a world, I, I suppose, where publishers may even recommend using a male pseudonym for your fantasy release to increase sales. Is that still a thing? Yep. Really? Gosh, no one ever. I mean, I, the idea that anyone would ever suggest I not use my name just didn't actually would have saved me an hour a hell of a lot of effort if someone yeah. had suggested we didn't use yeah. it. Oh, no, just <laughs> but, um, kind of, I mean, the idea of publishing even as kind of under my initials or something was just, you know, it would never, ever have occurred to me. Perhaps that was naive, but it would never have. I mean, I do sometimes wonder how people had, if I had published the book under a male pseudonym or as my initials, how people, whether people would have taken it slightly differently, whether particularly people would have taken the way I write the character of Maris slightly differently but obviously i shall never know but um it would just never would have never would have occurred to me in a billion years which again i mean maybe it says something about the fact that i'd like to think possibly britain is hey you ask folks um britain i'd like to think britain's ahead of you in some ways hey <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> i just watched my sale us sales drop off a cliff there but um you know i'd like to think that people in britain are a bit beyond that but maybe it's just me being completely naive Maybe I'd be rich and famous by now if I had published under a male pseudonym. 
Well, I think the more of us that go out there with, you know, Anna and Anna and Deborah and Sarah and, you know, Nora and Nettie and Cameron, I think the more of us um, that are out there on the bookshelves with obviously female names, uh, the less likely people are to try to stick by their ridiculous assumption that women can't write fantasy. Um, and and I had this um, I had this discussion with my agent when I first went out, you know, as to whether I'd use my own obviously female name or a pseudonym or initials and um, understanding completely that it will absolutely affect my income negatively. I opted to go with my obviously female name because I want my daughters to go into the bookstore and look at books written by obviously female authors and not have the assumption that only men are on the bookshelves. I want them to see Deborah and Anna and Anna and Sarah and go, oh, yeah, you know, look, that's approaching 50% at some point, I would hope. And and in, until we can just bury the assumption that women don't write fucking grimdark under a whole shitload of talented female authors you know, kind of throwing it in your face. Yeah. Even today I had a, I saw a comment where uh, somebody mentioned that they had like 200 books on their, on their Kindle and it was all male authors. And um, I think they had, they'd mentioned that just in passing that it wasn't necessarily intentional, <coughs> I suppose, but it's, it seems <laughs> staggering that somebody would have so many books all by men. So um, I don't know. Does it affect any of you personally when you see things like that? It just makes me really frustrated. Makes yeah. It makes me really frustrated. It makes me, sit there and in my head reel off you know 20 30 names of female authors and just think well it's it's not that complicated <laughs> um i mean there was um a, a friend of anna and mine uh, mike evans was uh, he lives in in wales and he was in his local um, bookstore with his kids and he went over and rearranged all of the fantasy books and he put all of he put like a load of female fantasy authors on the table so that they get more they're more obvious to browsers and the the shop was actually on twitter and they said we didn't notice you did that but thanks ever so much it's always nice to have our books looked at sort of thing and they said what else do you think we should do so i tweeted back and i said well i can only see six female authors on that list on that table and then i just listed off the top of my head everyone i could think of and the next day they had done an entire display of female authors in sff and they tweeted it and they were incredibly proud of it and blah, blah, blah. I mean, they did also include RJ Barker because they thought that with those <laughs> luscious flowing locks, they thought that he was a woman, which caused me no end of amusement. Um, but it was amazing that they read my tweet and went, you know what, you're absolutely right. And they did it and they made a difference. And I would love to know how many books get bought off that display, you know, because it was so big, it was so prominent. Are people just going to wander past and go, oh, oh, I like the look of that cover or, oh, I've heard of that one and pick it up. And would, you know, is there the potential for us to generate more sales because it's a female only display? And then that begs the question, should there have to be a female only display? And so it gets a little bit of a thorny issue. But I think until we do reach that parity, things like that do need to happen. We need to have almost more exposure just to get up to being 50% visible, if that makes sense. I have a, an author friend. So I, I have a lot of people talk to me about stuff because I generally keep my mouth shut. So I hear things. And one of my author friends, I was kind of discussing this on Facebook once, and she messaged me and said something along the lines of, I had a series published under a name that was gender neutral. 
And now I have another series publishing under an obviously female name. And I think this series is better. But unfortunately, the series that's published under the gender neutral name with certain cover art and stuff like this has sold a ton more. And so her experience to me, and, and she's not the only one who said that. I know of like two others off the top of my head who have expressed similar feelings. Her experience to me was, was when people don't know that she's a woman, her books sell more. And then yeah. on, on the other hand, related to that, I, I sometimes talk about things on, on Twitter. And this, this person and I were discussing books, and he said, until recently, I actively avoided all female authors. And even now, I, I, I don't consciously do it, but it's just a habit. So I, so I just avoid them because I just don't like how you guys write. It's too flowery, was what he said. So, you know, it's definitely there. It's, it's absolutely there in, in, the, in the genre. And I don't know what we can do to change it other than just exposing the fact that it's there. And kind of flaunting in the face of it. Your, casu- your casualty is just too flower for me, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kill people beautifully. <laughs> I, I was actually just saying um, that there there were three uh, female authors on this panel who were internally screaming at that story. Um, mm-hmm. That you know he he doesn't he doesn't um, physically go out of his way to choose women, but he doesn't. You know, he, he just goes for the same old shit every time, it sounds like. Um, and it just reminded me there was um, a fantasy Facebook group that I'm a member of. Um, and there was a, a chap on there who said, I love all types of fantasy. Give me some recommendations, but no women, please. <laughs> and and someone said, oh, OK, what, why don't why not any women? And he said, oh, they just can't write war. And I, I just sort of lost my shit a little bit. Um, I I didn't respond but what I will say that that did warm my heart my cold dead heart just a little bit was the sheer number of men who jumped on this guy and said you are missing out and there were guys who were saying you have no idea what you're talking about and they were recommend I mean they recommended me they recommended Anna Smith Spark they recommended Deborah they were recommending Cameron and Nettie and N.K. Jemison and and they were saying, you know, you are 100% missing out on some fabulous fiction because you have decided that women can't write war. And and I'm sure he used the same phrase. He said, oh, it's too flowery. How do you make war flowery? <laughs> I, I genuinely was, don't understand. See, maybe, was I mean, maybe, that's, maybe the solution is to leave it to men. To, you know, this is a male problem. This isn't an issue you know, maybe we should leave it to other men to deal with this. This should not be some kind of female issue. This should be men, you deal with the fucking idiots of your own of your own gender. You know, you, you deal with this. We just, someone who's that stupid, I have no interest in engaging with them. Yeah. I mean, what, what's the point? Me saying, hey, no, actually, I can write war, and I think you'll find, you know, oh, my special subject at university was Alexander the Great. Blah, 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 blah. That is not mm. going to have any effect on anyone. Men, you need to deal with this fucking problem, you know? You need to deal with this and just, you know, <laughs> don't put this on something that women have. We have to say, we have to put on our saints' uniforms and deal with as some kind of, we are just so wonderful, we're going to go out there and save you from your own stupidity. Just, no, you're just fucking stupid and just deal with it yourself. So I guess then that would take me to my next question then, would be um, how can readers best support women authors within science fiction and fantasy? I guess... Um... Buy our books! Buy our goddamn books! Jesus Christ, it's not that hard. <laughs> Buy several copies! And talk about and then, them and, and recommend them, them and yes. review them and, and vote for us for rewards. 
Yes. Yay! Vote for us for awards. That would be that would be amazing. And yes, and, <laughs> and, and put us on your little Venn diagrams once in a while. Just a fucking thought. <laughs> yeah, Sarah Chun, do you have any thoughts on? Um, you mentioned um, standing in the middle uh, before too. Um, could you speak to that? Maybe a little bit about uh, supporting women within SFF. Yeah, I I'm kind of really torn about the state of the community right now. But yeah, I I think one of the most important aspects to change this is to change the dialogue. And I think in a lot of ways that's happening. The the issue is always going to be the fact that change is hard and it's harder for some people than it is for others. And and I do feel like right now, and we have been for a few years, but I kind of feel like it's peaking at the moment. We're in a real state of of a tug of war between the camps who want the fun stuff and the light, the brevity, the, the, you know, old school Bane style science fiction and the people who are, who want to look forward. They're sick of monarchies and people in big dresses and stuff like that. There there's, um, and I don't think the two camps are really seeing eye to eye right now. And, and I do think in the community, there's a big price being paid and it's kind of sucked my passion out of, out of the genre. There's some reviewer friends online that I watch and they go through shit every day from people trolling them. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I don't understand. Part of the reason why I think this is happening is because I think our definitions for things are way too stagnant. War always means people on a battlefield with swords and arrows, and there's other battles being fought. Like, I absolutely feel like cancer was a war and I absolutely feel like my disabilities are a war. My body is a war I fight every day. So there's other ways to define this. And I think part of the way to change this culture is to force the definitions to expand a little bit and evolve to encompass more things. But it's also going to be a whole lot of people like me (laughs) standing up and and saying, okay, wait, this woman wrote a book and it's awesome and feel free to send me hate mail, but it's still pretty cool. So I think think we need to change the discussion and, and I think we need to shine a light on this stuff and just realize some people are never going to change but that doesn't mean the rest of us have to stay the same i also think it would help if um there there are there are certain authors in the genre right now who are immensely popular and when they recommend a new book you can see um you know on the graph so you can see that that book really takes off it would be stellar if once in a while these authors would pick up a book by a new woman writer um you know just for shits and giggles and review that instead of just more of the same old same old um just a thought anybody else want to chime in on supporting women authors within sff i mean basically I think just, things like this yeah. is actually really useful you know but also there's, there's us there are female authors talking to female authors and defending female authors. And, you know, if I'm on a panel, then I'm always going to promote Deborah and Anna because, you know, I know them and I've read their books and I like their books. So, you know, it's it's when someone asks you for recommendations, always give them women first. That That's how I do it now. Someone says, recommend me a book. I will always recommend five women before I will recommend a man. Because, you know, I, and I will always outnumber the male authors to the female authors. And if that means that I only get to recommend one bloke, then so be it. 
you know we you know we we need like you said we need to change the dialogue and the more vocal we are in doing that the more it's it's going to seep into the consciousness of people who don't want to change until they're just being bombarded with it and then you know they think fine i'm going to read one and then clearly they're going to fall in love with it and be a convert i did actually have someone who community who was talking to me on facebook who did say that they had never read a book but a fantasy novel by a female author i mean assume they had read a book by a woman at some point in their lives because that would just be too freaky if they hadn't but um <laughs> they had not read a book by a fancy by a female fantasy novelist before and they had read my book and they had realized actually there were <laughs> women could write fantasy and that was you know that was just the most amazing just to feel that was just so and then they went on and they read deborah's book and they read anna's book and it just you know to feel that sense one person you know it just it did feel a wonderful wonderful thing but yeah I mean just everything that everyone else has said just read books and promote promote people's books and talk about people's books it gets really you do just see the same names coming up and actually I mean I've got friends male and female who who are published by quite small presses who say you know they find it very depressing as well because it's always just the same names that come up again and again and again and you do want to say to some people well okay maybe I ought to leave you in your little happy little cycle of reading effectively the same three books just written by slightly different people changing the names slightly and kind of just you know the, the 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 three books and then the people who've just written you know they're kind of basically the prestige of that book and maybe just try something a little different if it's a maybe baby steps might be a small press a smaller press book by a male author because you know that is also you know just just different voices different kind of just maybe you know starting to think just reading reading something slightly different it just seems how on earth can you not want to read again it just baffles me and you cannot want to read a huge variety of voices and hear from as many different experiences and perspectives as possible. But yeah, just just buy books. <laughs> kind of buy and recommend books. Speaking of buy books, be sure to check the show notes as well. You can find Amazon links for uh, the books for uh, the authors that we have on the show today. And another thing I would recommend too is that you can also share cool podcasts that feature women authors. <laughs> I think is another bit of advice I might pass on to people listening to the podcast today. So um, if you hear cool podcasts, I don't know, um, maybe share it in your social media stream, tweet it, Facebook it. Uh, leave re- reviews on iTunes, etc. But no, some great, great advice uh, from our panelists here today for uh, for promoting uh, the works of women authors. So uh, great stuff. We're going to switch gears a little bit here, uh, lighten things up just a little bit. Uh, we have a few Patreon questions here we're going to get to, and then we're going to wrap up our Ladies of Grimdark panel here. Uh, great conversation that we're having here today. But supporters who want to be a part of the Grim Tidings podcast can drop over to patreon.com slash the Grim Tidings podcast. And for only $3 a month, you can find out who's coming on the show, submit questions, all sorts of cool stuff. So be sure to drop by our Patreon page and you can become a part of the Grimdark community like never before. Uh, but we have a few questions here. So let's hit on just a few of these. Um, should be fun. Uh, the first one is any special knickknacks or action figures sitting around your desk for inspiration? I've got uh, a TARDIS, a Dalek, Wonder Woman, two Wonder Woman, Michonne from The Walking Dead, R2-D2, Chewbacca, Jon Snow, a dragon, a minion, and a sonic screwdriver. (laughs) It's like a Comic-Con threw up on your desk. Yeah, basically. And and a picture of Buster Keaton. Ah, okay. Why do you like Buster Keaton so much? Um, I... We're going back into the midst of time. I came home from school when I was about 14 and my dad was at home and he was watching a Buster Keaton silent comedy um, and I just fell in love with it. And I've got I've got all of his movies. Um, I've got his autobiography. I've got biographies about him. 
I, I think, you know, the, the era of the silent movie, you can absolutely convey tragedy and absurdity and love and anger and hate um, non-verbally, which I always actually think is really useful for the writing process because you don't always have to say what people are thinking. Sometimes you can just show it. Interesting. Uh, Deborah Wolf, do you have like um, skulls or anything cool sitting around your desk there in Michigan? I imagine it's pretty grim, your workspace. Well, I mostly have dragons. I have jade dragons and wooden dragons and plush dragons and clay dragons. Um, I am always on the lookout for a a skull, um, you know, on which to stick a, a, a fat tallow candle. So um, I'm just waiting for the day that somebody doxes me and breaks into my house. Um, That's the good thing about, you know, the toxic Internet is there's always some jackass volunteering to become a decoration in my writing area. (laughs) Uh, Sarah Chorn, since you're the the new one here, um, what about your writing desk? Any sort of cool knickknacks you got sitting around there? So I don't have a writing desk because my life is pure chaos. And I write 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. I wrote a chapter while I cooked dinner the other day. It, it really, my writing desk is wherever I have time to put words down. So I don't, I don't have anything. Right. I'm boring. <laughs> <laughs> and then Anna Smith Spark, what about your writing area? I don't have a writing either area either. I write either on the dining table or in bed. Although I have got one of those wonderful drawings that Quint did me, Quint Von Cannon did me some amazingly beautiful drawings of Marith, and I've got a postcard in one of those that I kind of look at a lot. But um, and a framed copy of my map as well that I like looking at as a kind of campaign map. But I do not have, I didn't, I don't have a fixed writing space. I one day dream of having a house big enough that I will have a fixed writing space, and when I will have a sword and a bust of Alexander the Great, and a big massive copy of one of Quint's pictures of Marath. But until now, until then, I'll write usually in bed or at my dining table. Ah. Uh, next Patreon question uh, is actually by uh, co-host Philip Overby, since uh, he couldn't be on the show today. He wrote, uh, "Since it's past my bedtime and I'm a wuss." I'll submit a question. Uh, what's some weird shit you do for fun that you haven't shared with anyone? So any weird, fun things that you do for stress relief or for fun or for a hobby that maybe we haven't talked about on the podcast or you haven't shared before that maybe our listeners would be intrigued to hear? Years ago, I was um, I was a serious practitioner of ITF-style Taekwondo, um, and my, my club disbanded. Um, and I hadn't found another club that I particularly cared for, so I'd been out of it for a while. Um, but a couple of weekends ago, I hung out with my old instructor and he caught me unawares with a sidekick, which was super embarrassing. He insinuated that I was becoming slow in my old age. So I have uh, reinvested myself in martial arts and uh, we'll see where that goes. Anna Stevens, you have a, you know, like a black belt, don't you? I do, yeah. I'm a second dan in uh, Shotokan Karate um, and I had an ex- very similar experience to Deb um, in that my club disbanded about five or six years ago um so i still do a little bit of practice at home on my own and my gym has some punch bags so i'll usually do a little bit of bag work after my gym session um but i have only recent very recently signed up to a long sword class um which starts next month it's a six-week beginner german long sword class um and then i guess if i survive it or graduate it um, I get to join the club itself where they will teach. Um, they teach German and Italian style um, medieval sword fighting. So I am so excited for that. I cannot even begin to tell you um, because as as I think I mentioned on my 
previous time on the podcast, I um, I do have a tendency to act out my fight scenes. So once I actually know what I'm doing, then my fight scenes might become even more accurate. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I, I basically just can't wait to hit people with swords. <laughs> and myself, probably. I'll probably lose a leg in the first week or something, but um, it'll be worth it. Maybe one one day you and uh, Deborah can meet at a con and have a little spar sesh. Yeah. <laughs> sidekick competition. Yeah. It sounds like an awful lot of fun. The women don't know how to fight, you know, or write about fighting or whatever. <laughs> Uh, so let's take a, well, that takes us to our next question then. This should, this should be fun for each of you then. Uh, pick your favorite weapon and why. Very appropriate for our Grim Dark panel. So we can start uh, with, with you, Sarah Chorn. What is your favorite weapon and why? Oh, man. I don't know. I, I like it when people can kill other people without a weapon. I think that's pretty cool. Just like really brutalize the fuck out of someone with your bare hands. Just do it. <laughs> Rip them apart. I like that. <laughs> Anna Smith-Spark, favorite weapon and why? Uh, probably either just keeping it really simple on the sword because, I mean, they're just, they're beautiful objects. They obviously have all kinds of interesting psychological connotations. Um, you don't have to be a deep Freudian psychoanalyst to think what a sword can possibly represent. Um, they're just very simple. They're just attractive. They're, they are very attractive. They, well, they can be made to look very attractive. Although I also have a great kind of liking for classical, the, the Ceris, the Macedonian Ceris, the Macedonian long spear, simply because it was used by the troops of Alexander the Great, who is one of my great loves and passions. And I have read a great number of books about the Macedonian phalanx, uh, who were absolutely unstoppable there. At their height, conquered most of the known world. So, yeah, the sword and the Swiss. Cool spear, bro. I like yep. it. I like it. And then Anna Stevens, favorite weapon. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think hand to hand and the sword are two. You know, they are two absolute classics, and that you know they they show up time and time and time again in fantasy and history, um, and deservedly so. Um, I'm I'm actually going to say the bow and arrow um because as much as i love the others i think that um you know the bow is surprisingly versatile and when you run out of arrows you can just use it as a big stick and club people with it um you can use the bowstring as a garrote maybe or at least to strangle somebody um so i think it's surprisingly versatile and um and i think that you know like the traditional sort of you would longbow is absolutely it's a it's a beautiful looking object um, as well as as being extremely lethal, and there are definitely times when hiding up in a tree and shooting someone is preferable to facing them on the ground. So I'm going bow and arrow. I like it, bow and arrow. And then Deborah A. Wolf, what is your favorite weapon and why? Well, I have I have two favorite weapons. Um, my very favorite would probably be a trebuchet and a pile of dead cows. <laughs> <laughs> if if you've been on a long campaign and you're you're camped outside these assholes walls and they're laughing at you because they're in there, you know, with their, their lovers and their bars and stuff and their food and you're out there and your feet are rotting and you're friggin' miserable and you just want to go home, but nobody will let you go home. You've got a trebuchet and a pile of dead cows. You can, you can make like points, like 10 points if you take out the bar, five points if you take out a well, you know, 23 points if you take out some old dude with his walker. That'd be awesome. That would really, that would really improve morale. 
Um, you, you know, it, I just think that would be a great load of fun if you were stuck on a fucking campaign somewhere and you couldn't go home. Um, you know, and, Cas- and, Cas- and Siege Weaponry is damn, damn cool. It's amazing stuff, Casco Siege Weaponry. Right. right. And you imagine, I mean, when they hit the ground, that would be that would be better than a light <laughs> anti-tank weapon. That would be amazing. So, yeah, that's on my bucket list. And, and the other thing I like, I like the, the Tanfa, the Sunkwa, um, because you can just basically make that thing out of two sticks and beat the fuck out of somebody. And I think that's amazing. Oh, the mus- the um, the Mongolian composite bow as well. I mean, that, that was absolutely <laughs> lethal up until the invention of modern firearms. The um, Mongolian, the horse archers, Mongolian horse archers, Scythian horse archers, just composite with the composite bow, the Step Nomads and Composite Bows just absolutely lethal and unstoppable. Plus Step Nomads. I mean Step Nomads just the sex one of the sexiest phrase. Races right up there. Macedonian cavalry charge, Polish winged hussars and step step nomads. Three sexiest phrases in the English language. <laughs> yes. Alright. Well a great yeah. weapons array uh selected here from our Ladies of Grimdark panel. So great stuff. Um I think we have one more question here, one more topic that we will hang out on for just a minute and then we'll give a website, social media info, and then we will wrap up our panel. We have just about 10 minutes left. Thanks again to um, all of our panelists for joining us on the show today. So let's wrap up with one last topic I think uh, would be a good takeaway for um, anyone listening to the show, be be they a writer or a reader or everything in between. Um, And that would be um, how do each of you individually as writers balance your home life with your writer life. Um, You're each busy in your own ways with families, careers, websites, uh, kung fu, uh, etc. Lots of things going on, but in it, you find time, you found the time to become published authors, what many have aspired to do. Um, So it's a great accomplishment where you found the time, the discipline to make things happen. So how do you each personally balance that work-life and that writer life where you find the energy to do both. And uh, we can start off with um, Anna Stevens for this one. Uh, okay, so, I mean, I've I've been extremely lucky in that, you know, a, a couple of the publishing deals that I struck were enough to allow me to give up work. Uh, so I'm currently a full-time writer. Um, I'm fairly sure that, you know, well, I know for a fact that the money is going to run out at some point, and I will probably go back to work at that point. But I'm hopeful that... Um, I will only need to work, you know, a few days a week. And, and I, I would really like to keep it as as much time writing as possible. So, as, I mean, aside from that, I tend to write six days a week usually. Um, so I try and have a fairly set routine just to make sure that I actually get dressed and leave the house every day um, because it would be really easy not to do that. So I will sort, you know, I'll, I'll get up and wave goodbye to my husband as he trudges off to the day job. Um, and then I usually go to the gym and then come back and do a few hours and then have some lunch and, you know, maybe do a bit of social media ring and um, then do a couple more hours writing and then settle down for the evening, have tea, stuff like that. Um, I'm a member of a writer's group, which I go to once or twice a month. And then, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm about to start sword fighting. So I think it's really important, especially for someone who does work from home all the time and who doesn't speak to people for nine hours every day, that um, it is really important to get out of the house and just to see other people and get some fresh air and, and remind yourself that, you know, you, you are a human being on a planet full of other human beings and you should probably interact with them at least once a day. 
Deborah Wolf, what insights do you have on um, keeping your home life and your work life and your writer life all kind of balanced? Well, I have, although, although I'm well published, I can't afford to uh, give up the day job at this point. Um, so what I do is I get up, you don't, there, and it's not really an issue of finding the time. You're not going to find the time if you're waiting for it to fall in your lap. It's not going to happen. Um, if you're serious about writing, you have to make the time. I get up very early in the morning, um, usually about three or four. And in order to write that much and work a full job um, and be a single mother and a martial artist, I have had to uh, take exercise very seriously. I exercise at least five days a week, usually six or seven. Um, I exercise very hard. I've gotten uh, a lot more fit. I eat a lot better. Um, and that allows me the energy to pull off a ridiculous subhuman schedule. Also, you have to realize that sleep is for the week. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go with uh, Anna Smith-Spark. What is your approach to balancing home life, work life, and writer life? So, yeah, so I have two children, which means that stopping work, I stopped work for a while, but... I need security of income when you when you have two when you have small children you absolutely need secure income and so I've gone back to work for a couple of days a week which I'm actually really enjoying in some ways because I think it's it is quite good for me to be I'm a, I work in the civil service and actually it is it's innately interesting being involved in Britain politics that close up but also my cynicism levels have gone right back up again since I started working again which is probably healthy um, <laughs> my ability to write. Um, Gritty, masculine, gritty male bonding dialogue has certainly gone back up again since hanging up with my work colleagues. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I just don't, I don't do stuff for housework. My house is a fucking tip. Um, there's just piles <laughs> of stuff everywhere. I just, you know, there are just prioritised. I have, I don't do, no, none of the clothes in the house get ironed. I just, you know, I just prioritise. What I, the only things I do with my life really are read and write. I just kind of, it's not, I don't watch much television. I don't go out to the cinema. I don't really, I do, I do exercise. I try and get some exercise in every day. But basically just, I mean, people kind of talk, remember there was some stuff on social media about someone saying, well, how do you get the time to write? And people were sort of saying, you know, public, a lot of published authors were saying, you know, they put in huge amounts of work. And someone was kind of coming up back saying kind of, God, you make it sound like it's painful. I mean, you know, yes, you, <laughs> have to make yourself do it you have to kind of what do you want to do do you want to sit around watching television or do you want to write it would be very easy to sit around watching television but you have sometimes you have to make yourself write. it's not I mean I say this constantly I'll say this again I've said this every time I talk to people you can't just kind of wait for the muse to strike you know you meet so many people who say like you know when they don't have to work anymore or when they retire or when they can get three months of absolute perfect solitude you know you people who go after things like writers retreats I mean it sounds absolutely wonderful going after a writer's retreat but people talk as if you can only write like that I wrote most of the Gord of Broken Knives on the train in and out of work in the mornings and in the afternoons and then I wrote in the evening rather than watching television and it's just that that making space and if it means that you're not wearing you haven't done any ironing and it means that your house is a complete dump well that's your choice you don't have to make that choice but that's your that you just have to make you just have to choose and then um, Sarah Chorn, you are currently working and then you're trying to uh, write two novels. You've got the novel on submission, um, very busy schedule, um, doing the uh, spiffo judging as well, editing books as well. I mean, you got a lot going on. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's a lot of plate spinning over in the world of Chorn. So maybe give us uh, and our listeners kind of an insight into how you keep everything balanced with your writer life, your home life and everything you've got going on. Yeah. So I work part time in the mornings and then I work at five in the morning. So mornings are out for writing. 
I have two kids, a two-year-old and a six-year-old. The six-year-old's in school. The two-year-old is in the I'll move and kill myself if you're not watching me face. And so, so she is constantly under supervision. I ha- I usually edit two novels at the same time. And I've got two going right now. And I have a list of some clients waiting. I'm judging the contest. I have obligations to review books for publishers. I um, have my own books going. So I'm, I'm constantly running. And I, uh, my editing clients, I tell them I will usually get a few chapters done during the week. But you're going to get most of your editing done on the weekends. So weekends are usually for editing. Um, I dump the kids on my husband and go to the library and say, see you Monday. And so that's that's that. But for the weekdays, it's harder. My kid is in that phase where she might not take a nap, which is a whole lot of fun. It's killing me. So if she naps, then I'll either write or edit during her nap time. And then I'll do whichever one I did not do during nap nap time when my husband gets home at night until I pass out. And so that's how that works. If she does not nap, then that's a really fun day. And I literally get nothing done. Um, And I might get some writing done at night. And usually that's when I write my most bloody, horrible scenes because I'm just that goddamn frustrated <laughs> so. actually, a, friend of mine who, a friend of mine who's a creative writing lecturer said that it's actually recommended practice to write when you're slightly tired because you're that kind of your inner critic is switched off because you yeah. are in that much more just kind of it's just coming out when you're not you're too tired yeah, to and, yourself, and, and so on, that give us hope for everyone yeah well yeah and on top of all that I have a chronic illness so I have like eight specialist doctors I usually go to about 10 to 15 doctor appointments in a month just to keep my body at a functional level. So if I'm at a doctor's appointment, I will always write in the waiting room and in the doctor's room um, when I'm waiting. You have no idea how much writing you can get done waiting for the medical establishment to move its freaking <laughs> ass and get shit oh, no, done. Oh, no, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean, Sarah. I know that blissful moment of being in the waiting room thinking and just the fact that I'm going to be spending three hours stuck here. Yeah, always all bring I, your The laptop. only thing I can do is read or write, yeah. It's, um, it's, just, it's actually just kind of blissful and you get really disappointed in some ways when the doctor asks you, finally gets around exactly. to calling you in. It's, yeah. yeah. Yep, so that, that's my life. Well, I think any listener... Um, any writer in training right now listening to the podcast, I, I don't think anybody can find any sort of excuse where they just can't find some time to get some words on the page. You don't have to find the time. Deborah says you have to create the time. So, um, Actually, you know, the best time, to, actually, top tip, make an appointment to give blood because you have to sit for ages. <laughs> and you can do it at work time as well. You're almost always allowed to go and give blood at work time because it's a civic duty because you're saving someone's life by sitting there taking time out of your working day writing. And then they give you free crisps afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and, and pro tip: don't tell any of us how you can't find the time because you've got a half a college load, and you know you're living in your mom's goddamn basement because we don't want to fucking hear it. <laughs> well, and the other thing, at least for me, if I don't write, I go crazy because when I said earlier that my scrivener is my therapist, I really freaking mean that. I work out so much shit when I write, and and if it if it just bottles up and festers, I think I'll explode. So if you really feel that bug inside of you, you'll make time. You'll make time because if you don't, you'll go crazy. 
Great tips, great information, uh, great panel. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. We've hit our 90-minute time limit, but this was a great conversation, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, have folks check out each one of these authors. Um, let's do a quick show close and get everybody uh, on their way, um, get some websites, some social media info for our listeners to uh, follow each of you uh, ladies uh, online and check you out uh, at your websites. Um, so let's start with uh, Sarah Chorn. If you could give us uh, your website again and maybe where we can follow you on social media. My website is bookwormblues.net, and you can find me anywhere online as Bookworm Blues. Very good. And then uh, when can we expect to maybe read some of your work? Uh, I always post snippets on Facebook, but as for being published, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will be able to uh, follow your website, keep track of you on social media, and then look forward to great things forthcoming from Sarah Chorn. Um, next up, Anna Spitzbark, if you could give us uh, your website and where uh, listeners can follow you on social media. Okay, so my website is quarterbrokenknives.org, which is the title of my book, but without the the. I am on Facebook as Anna Smith Spark and also the author page Anna Smith Spark. And I believe I am the only Anna Smith Spark on Facebook. And I tweet as Queen of Grimdark. So um, my definition of Grimdark earlier was obviously the right one. I have spoken. The Queen has spoken. It was, I mean, it was actually Mike Fletcher's idea. It was a joke that kind of. And I have actually personally apologised to Joanne Bacrombie for the number of people who make hilarious jokes. I think it's really they, no one has ever occurred to them before to make a tweet about the fact I'm obviously married to Joanne Bacrombie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh, Deborah A. Wolf, could we please have uh, your website and then where can listeners follow you on social media? Absolutely. Um, I'm at DeborahAWolf.com, um, which is a. <laughs> Sadly, in need of update. Um, I'm more often on Facebook as Deborah A. Wolf and my author page, Deborah A. Wolf. Um, and I am on Twitter as the Bard Queen because I am obviously a rogue. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt about that. Uh, and then uh, lastly, not leastly, um, Anna Stevens, please give us your website and where uh, listeners can follow you. Okay, sure. So I'm on Anna-Stevens.com is my website. Um, and slightly confusingly, I'm on Twitter as Anna Smith Writes, which is because my married name is Smith and I'm published under my maiden name. Uh, and I'm on Facebook as Anna Stevens. Very good. Very good. So uh, and then again, we'll have uh, the links in the show notes as well for folks who just want to drop by our website at thegrimtidingspodcast.com. We'll have links to everything, Amazon links, previous appearances, and then uh, you can check out everything that we have going on for the ladies of Grimdark joining us today. Ladies, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was a great conversation. Looking forward to getting this out into the world and letting the world know that uh, uh, Grimdark is alive and well and the ladies are representing uh, across the board and uh, we're excited to have you continue writing uh, your great works. Uh, each of you has a, a sequel uh, coming out this year um, so folks can look forward to reading that. They can read your debut novels as well. So plenty of great grimdark goodness to dive into, to add to your TBR, and I re highly recommend each of these authors that we have on today, as well as Sarah Chorn when her books come out as well, and she takes the publishing world by storm as well. But uh, uh, great conversation again here today. Ladies of Grimdark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. And again, you can follow us on thegrimtidingspodcast.com. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram now, instagram.com slash grimdarkfiction is the website you can check out, and then twitter.com slash grimdarkfiction as well as where you can follow us. Facebook group, grimdarkfiction, readers and writers, you can join us for daily conversations and updates for everything grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, 
Rob Matheny, thanks again for checking out this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time right here. Thanks for listening.